Our reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 54, uh, which is on page 741 in the Bibles in front of you. Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. To me this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with sapphires, I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to work havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Our Father, whether for the first time or for the millionth time, as we hear your word now. Teach us, please, to stand on your promises, which are secure, which are certain, which are full of power, and will never pass away. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do grab a seat. And it'd be great if you could flick open the Bibles again. That would really help me. Page 741, Isaiah 54. And on the back of the notice sheet, you'll find uh, an outline of where we're going and some space to uh, reflect. What you're expecting in the future really affects how you think and plan ahead. So if you're in a business and you're expecting growth or you're expecting decline, it'll really affect how you plan. 
Growth means more staff, bigger premises. Declining might mean different needs from your existing staff. If you're a family and you're expecting twins or you're expecting your great-grandmother to come and live with you, it'll affect how you plan 2010. If you're expecting to decline, your kids have all left and gone to university and got jobs, it's going to have real practical, everyday impact on your next week's and month and year. What you're expecting in the future really affects how we think ahead. And January the 3rd is a great day to ask, what are we expecting in 2010? What are we expecting in the coming 12 months? Because whatever it is, it's going to be affecting all our decisions, all our expectations, all our planning, isn't it? You could think at different levels, couldn't you? What are you expecting personally, individually? And what are we expecting in our communities we're part of, at work, in our family, in our church, in our networks, in the groups we're members of? What are we expecting nationally, in the general election, internationally? Isn't this a time of year where we, we very naturally start thinking ahead? And politicians tell us what they're expecting from the year ahead. And all sorts of people tell us what they're expecting from the year ahead. And we start to think, what does that mean for us? How's it going to affect us? We plan financially, depending on what we're expecting this year, and so on. And that's why I chose to look at Isaiah 54 today, because Isaiah 54 is when God says, this is what's going to happen in the future. God says, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And how do you respond to that? This is the God we've just sung, haven't we, that his every promise is reliable. Every promise is certain and sure and will never pass away. I, I don't know if you heard Nick Clegg's New Year's message a few days ago. I have to confess, I didn't give it a lot of attention. Nick Clegg saying, what will happen if I'm prime minister? I, I don't know, I'm not a political analyst, but I don't think it's going to happen. So I just didn't really care after a couple of minutes. This is God. This is God. He's saying, this is what will happen, not if I'm God, but because I'm God. Not if I'm king, but because I'm king. Not if I'm in charge, but because I'm in charge. Here's a great New Year's message that's really worth listening to, isn't it? Because this is going to happen. This is really going to happen. What's he got to say? Two things. He promises that his kingdom will grow. And he promises that his key people will be comforted. He promises that his kingdom will grow. And that his people will be comforted. The kingdom will grow in the present. And his people will be comforted in the future. And of course the kingdom and the people are the same thing. Because the kingdom is just the group of people who call Jesus king. So God says, in the present, more and more people will become Christian. And in the future, all of those who become Christians will have great joy and comfort. Let's have a look at those two things, shall we? as we hear God's New Year's message. So first of all, he promises that his kingdom will grow. Now, Isaiah 54, it flows very naturally out of the passage before it. That's quite normal. And Isaiah 53 is one of those familiar passages. It's a passage all about Jesus the Christ. As he suffers on the cross, he was pierced for our transgressions. It was a passage written before the event, hundreds of years, looking forward to it, that we read now, looking back at it. Just look at the last couple of verses from the top of the column on page 741. 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Can we see that it's about Jesus? He was numbered with the transgressors. He was crucified next to criminals. He poured his life out unto death. That's what he did on Golgotha, on a tree outside Jerusalem. But then in 54, we get three commands that spring from those verses. And the first one is sing. The first one is sing. And that picks up the repeated word in verses 11 and 12. Did you notice it? I don't know if you noticed it. Jesus died for many. He will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. He, was, he bore the sins of many. When God speaks about the cross, he doesn't say... Jesus died for just a few little people, just a handful. When God speaks about the cross, and God speaks about Jesus' death, he says he died for a huge number of people, for many, for many people. And that's why the first response is happiness, is joy, is singing. Now, if you know your Old Testament, if you know God's people's history through the years, you might be able to think of a barren woman who heard this promise. Can anybody think of a barren woman who'd never born a child, who was told she'd have more children than those even who were married. Can anybody remember? Because Galatians 4 tells us this is about Abraham and Sarah. And the first thing you know about Sarah, the first time you meet her, Genesis 11, Sarah who was barren. But God promised to Abraham and Sarah, and he came to them and he said, you, though you are 100 years old and though you're barren, you will have more children than there are grains of sand on the seashore and stars in the sky. It's an amazing promise. And do you know what happened? They did. hundred years old and barren, and they had a son called Isaac. And Isaac's family, they grew so big, you had to call them a nation. They got called the nation Israel. That's the name of God's people in the Old Testament. What, what, what do we call God's people now? The church. That's why when I was a child growing up in church, I used to sing a little children's song that some of us here might be familiar with. Everybody knows? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you. And I won't do the rest of it, because you have to shake your arms and move your legs and everything. Okay? 100 years old, barren. God said you'd have more kids than there are sand on the seashore. And do you know how many people in this world now would call themselves Christian? about 2.3 billion. 2.3 billion people on this planet right now could sing, Baron Sarah had many children. Many children had Baron Sarah, and I'm one of them. Do you see? It's an amazing promise. It's a, frankly, it's a ridiculous promise. If it hadn't come from God, why would you trust it at all? But God promised it. And he keeps his promises, doesn't he? You see, you sing in Isaiah 54 verse 1 because Jesus died for many. Jesus died for many people. And I wonder, if you're here and you wouldn't want to call yourself a Christian, I wonder if you see that that's a great encouragement. The church is not a tiny little clique that's inward looking. The church is an expansive group who are always outward looking, 
Because we know that the Savior who died for me, the Savior who died for us, he died for many people all around the world. The church is a group who live in constant expectation of more and more people coming to know Jesus as King, as Lord, as Savior. Second command is to enlarge, verse 2. So you sing for joy because he died for many people, then you enlarge your tent. So you look at verses 2 and 3, and it says, look, you need to level out the place you pitch your tent, make a wider place for your tent. And then you need a bigger cloth because your tent's going to get bigger. And then you need longer guy ropes to support your tent. You need really big pegs to hold your huge tent up, don't you? And I guess if you're Abraham and Sarah, there's just two of you, and you're told we're going to have more kids than there is sand, and you're looking out on a desert, and you're sort of going, one grain of sand, you're going to need a bigger tent, aren't you? I mean, let's imagine, stupidly, let's just take a ridiculous idea, let's imagine that you personally knew that before the end of your life, you'd have a thousand children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Ridiculous. Let's imagine Katie and I knew this. Katie will be relieved to know, I don't know this. Okay? Imagine you knew that. What would you do? I mean, what would you do? Well, you you might start thinking about buying a bigger house, mind you. I mean, wouldn't that be pretty natural? Certainly, if not today, then you know that in the future you're going to need a bigger place. And you might think, okay, a bigger house, I mean, that's a start. But a thousand? You might start looking into a mortgage on a village, mind you. I need to get a bigger village to, 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 to hot house my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. Uh, you, might, um, you might go bigger. I was tempted to go bigger. So you start finding out what are, what are the smallest nations in the world? Can we look at actually becoming a nation if we know we're going to have a thousand people? It'd be fun, wouldn't it? So you find out that the smallest nation in the world is the Pitcairn Islands, and it has a population of 50. And you think, we could have them. A thousand people? Fine. No worries. 50 people. I don't know where it is. We can find it later. The problem is, when you look at the next biggest nation, it gets tricky, because the second biggest nation in the globe is Vatican City. 800, so you kind of think we're going to numerically, we'll have them numerically, but they've got the Swiss Guard, they've got, you know, the Pope on their side, they, you know, that's difficult. So maybe the Pitcairn Islands, that is the way forward. But if you knew it, you'd, you'd do something about it, wouldn't you? Abraham and Sarah, two of them, in a tiny little two-man tent. Well, they're going to build a bigger one, aren't they? If they believe that their children are going to outnumber the sand on the seashore... Of course, it's a ridiculous idea to think of for us to have a thousand kids and grandkids. But what promises has God made about the church? Matthew 16 said, Peter, you're the rock. And on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Or the apostle John, when given a vision of the end of time, saw people clothed in white from every tribe, nation, and tongue, gathered around the throne. Clothing white just means purified, clean. And he said they are an uncountable multitude that no one could count. That's what it's going to be like when we see all the Christians down the centuries at the great end of time. Uncountable. You just won't. It's just a sea of them. God's not making any promise about Christchurch Mayfair. He's not making any promise about my family or yours. He's not making any promise specifically about anything that we're all involved in. He's not making a promise about London. But he does say, look, Jesus died for many people. He does say, the kingdom will grow. You're going to need a bigger tent. You're going to need more cloth. 
God says people are going to become Christians all the way through history. My kingdom's going to grow. Now, if we believe that, isn't that going to affect how we come to 2010? Isn't that going to affect how we plan, how we prioritize, how we use our time and our diets, our energies? A previous Archbishop of Canterbury said this. Not often you hear them quoted here, by the way, but this, this is a good quote. The church is the only institution that exists for the sole benefit of its non-members. Isn't that great? The church is the only institution that exists for the sole benefit of its non-members. But for some of us, this will sound scary, and for some of us, we'll be pretty dubious. It's, it's a kind of it's a big out there kind of promise. I mean, and let's be honest, it's not necessarily what we see happening, is it? Can we really be sure? Is it, is it worth really investing my life in this? Uh, how far should I go if I really believe this? Well, they're good questions. We're going to come to them. But you see that God predicts that problem. And his third command is, don't worry. Don't worry, verse 4. Do not be afraid. Do not fear disgrace. Don't be worried. Because God will protect you. You see, God is this amazing, miracle-doing God who says to a barren woman, I want you to plan for kids. And now, verses 4 to 8, he says to a rejected wife, I want you to plan your wedding. They're they're absolutely ridiculous promises if they didn't come from God. And what's happened here in verses 4 to 8 might be surprising. Did you notice it there? Verses 7 and 8. God had rejected his people. In fact, when this promise was made, they were still in that rejection. He had deserted them. And in fact, the whole of Isaiah is really about this. It's really about the fact that God had had to get away from his people. He had to leave. He had to leave them. He had to get away. Because, you see, his people, they turned away from him. They'd ignored him. They'd spurned him. All the good that he'd done them, all the blessings he'd showered upon them, all the protection he'd given them. And they turned away from him. And God had to just get away from them. He had to turn away from them because they were full of evil. The way that they refused to recognize who he was, it was awful. The things they did in rebellion against him, they were horrendous. You see, God's own perfection, his own holiness, his own purity, his own glory, meant he had to go. But that's only half the story in verse 7 and 8 because he says, doesn't he, for a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I'll bring you back. Verse 8, in a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Do you see? Sing, because Jesus died for many. Buy a bigger tent, because he died for many. And don't worry. Don't be afraid. You won't be disgraced or rejected. God will care for you with his deep compassion and his everlasting kindness. So if you're not sure how to react when you hear that the kingdom's going to keep growing that lots of people are going to become Christians. Look at God. Look at the kind and compassionate saviour. Sing, plan for growth, but don't worry, because God's kind and compassionate. That's what God promises for the shape of the future. This is what God promises is going on even today. Even today. Those things are certainties throughout 2010.
But then do you see that he moves from the present hope to the future hope. He moves from my kingdom will grow to my people will be comforted. And we've got three little aspects to this section, three little aspects to this. The covenant, the city, and the certainty. The covenant, the city, and the certainty. So verse 9 and 10, the covenant. That's a Bible word for promise, a binding promise. And it goes back, doesn't it, to the day of Noah. Look at verse 9. In the days of Noah, a flood covered the whole earth. God wiped out all bar eight of the entirety of humanity. And after that flood, God promised, Genesis 9, I'll never do it again. He said, I'll never, ever, ever do that again. And he hasn't, has he? God has never again wiped humanity off the face of this earth. Even though, verse 7 and 8, even though, verse 7 and 8, his people make him angry. Even though they spurn and reject him. Even though we know he's wrathful. Never again. And then he says, verse 9, look, I promised it to Noah and I kept it. And I'm promising it to you now and you can trust me, I'll keep it. That promise, it was a covenant. It was a binding agreement. This promise is just as sure, just as certain. A binding covenant promise. When I was a teacher, I had a form. I had, I had a, you know, every teacher has a little form they have to look, at, look after. I had years 10 and 11, so that's um, just up to GCSEs. They're basically the, the hardest ones to look after. That's what I used to tell myself every week. And I had a particular student who, and kind of your job as form teacher is your job to slightly be on your student's side, um, particularly the, the disruptive ones. And I had a particular student who was basically the, the most disruptive student in his whole year. And um, I'll spare you his name. And every week, I'm going with him to visit the head of year or going with him to visit the depth head or going with him and his parents to visit someone else. And all the time, just constantly. And I'm constantly just trying to back him. I'm constantly trying to encourage him. I'm constantly trying to help him. I do loads of stuff to help him. And eventually, after about a year and a half, because I'm a slow learner, I realized that he is just a liar. In fact, it turned out he was the drug dealer for the whole of school. So 1,100 pupils, and he was the guy that was supplying them all. Well, not all, but, you know, those who were using drugs, he was the guy supplying them all. He had lied flat to my face time and time and time and time and time again. He was a liar. He just, he was an absolute liar. So after about a year and a half, when I I slowly and eventually realized this, the way I used to treat his promises was... I just ignored them, didn't I? So my parents have signed the form. It's in the post. It'll be there tomorrow. Well, no, you're a liar. I didn't say that to him, but you don't expect it, do you? So I will do the homework. It'll be with you. No. And God says, look, I'm a truth teller. I made a promise to Noah and I've kept it. I've kept it for thousands of years despite all that you've done. I'm a truth teller. I'm a promise keeper. And here's a promise. He died for many and the kingdom will grow. He died for many and the kingdom will grow. Verse 10, this promise, this covenant of peace is more secure than the mountains. It's more secure than Mount Everest and that's going nowhere fast. Do you see? God says you can trust me. But the promise, what does it look like? It looks like a city, verse 11 to 15. I don't know if you noticed in the... Do you see how God's compassion is amazing in these, these, these verses? He, he takes the picture of a barren woman and, and of a rejected wife. Those are two 
horrible, horrible situations back then because in those days, your children, they'd provide for you as you got old. You'd be living in their homes and they'd be looking after you, feeding you, clothing you, supporting you. That's all your future certainty is your children and your barren. And your husband, he would protect you from other people. He was your, your comfort, your security, your protection as you went through your daily life. So if you're barren and rejected, you really are in trouble for the future and for the present. And God says, here's what you can look forward to. You can look forward to beauty, to a relationship with God himself and to security. He says, I'll make you beautiful. I'll fill you with truth for your security. And that'll be your comfort. And that was an amazing comfort. That's an amazing thing to look forward to beautiful verse 11 and 12 even the foundations of the city are made of precious stones now if you've ever been on a building site you'll know that that's not what people make foundations out of okay everything but everything find someone who's worked on a building site and ask them the silliest thing they've seen put in the foundations of the houses we live in and you'll get ridiculous answers come and meet some of my students they can all tell you because a few of them have done this awful stuff goes in the foundations but god uses sapphires the bits you're not going to see. Uh, the ramparts are made of ruby. The ramparts are there to be shot away by attacking armies. They don't, the ramparts don't last, do they? They get attacked. And they're made of rubies. You see, the picture language is of being really, really, really beautiful. And uh, not just sort of dressed in a fitted suit on the outside, but with designer underwear too, even the foundations made of sapphires. Truth, verse 13 and 14. Instead of being rejected, look, I'll be the personal teacher of your family. Look at that. Your sons will be taught by the Lord and your children will be at peace. There you were. I had rejected you. Now I'm going to be their teacher. I'm going to be right there with your whole family. From barrenness and rejection to intimate connection. The comfort of a loving relationship with the source of everything good in the entire universe. And then verse 14, if you're attacked, it won't be me. They will not succeed. You'll be secure because you're founded in righteousness, verse 15, verse 14. No tyranny. And it's interesting, isn't it? When you read that, I know this is going to say more about me than about you, but when I read this, I remember Rivendell. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you know you're Tolkien. Rivendell, the last homely house. It's Tolkien's picture of home. It's the house that he describes that it is everything. It's a house that Bilbo says it's perfect. Whether you want activity or rest or singing or food or whatever, it's a perfect place. What characterizes Rivendell? It's beautiful, isn't it? The elves have worked uh, with mithril and silver and gems and jewels and songs. A place of beauty. It's a place of truth because Elrond, the high elf, the wisest man in the whole of earth, he lives there and you can ask him. You can ask him his advice and he'll give it you because you can access him day by day. And security because Elrond, he wears a ring of power. He's the highest elf. Do you remember when the nine riders try and get in? He just raises up a flood and they die. The most powerful servants of the enemy can't get in. Rivendell's a house of beauty, truth and security, just like God says for eternity. And that's no doubt why Tolkien designed Rivendell like that. But if it sounds a bit like pie in the sky when you die, just have a look at the next verse. The certainty. So we've seen the covenant of the city. The certainty is 
Look, I make blacksmiths, says God. I don't know if you know what blacksmiths can do. We don't really know nowadays. But Katie and I, we were in Ironbridge in Shropshire in August. And Ironbridge is famous for, you guessed it, an iron bridge. And it's a huge bridge. It's 60 meters long. It weighs 380 tons. It was built in 1775, and it still works today as a bridge. You look at that and you think, wow. I mean, the blacksmith who worked on that bridge, I mean, you'd feel fairly... Oh, yeah, look what I made today, love. That. You know, the the ironmongers who did that 400-ton bridge. That's pretty cool. And when you look at it, it's amazing. And you think, wow, the men who made that. And God says, I made them. They they, they can make great things. Yeah, they can. I made them. The huge things that blacksmiths can make, the huge strong objects. God says, I make blacksmiths. That's how secure, that's how certain this future is. So what? So what's all this? Who cares? Well, what you're expecting in 2010, that's going to affect everything about your life. It's going to affect how you plan. It's going to affect everything you're thinking about for the next year. What can we expect in 2010? God says, my kingdom will grow. People will become Christians in the next year. People will come men and women from all over the world will come to the Lord Jesus Christ and call him king and receive every blessing in the spiritual realms this year. That'll happen. Lots of them. Because Jesus died for many. A man called William Carey, one of the great heroes of the faith, preached on this in 1791. Very famous sermon. And he said this. Expect great things from God attempt great things for God and you know that his sermon that day and that meeting he was at for those few days that kick started world mission from that meeting people went out with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to China, to Africa to India, to South America how many of those 2.3 billion people we mentioned earlier thank God for William Carey Thank God that William Carey said, look, do you get it? The kingdom's going to grow. The kingdom's going to, people are going to become Christians. He didn't have a word of knowledge from God to say, look, China, I can promise you these people here, or, or India, I can promise you that. Nothing specific, but the certain knowledge that the kingdom will grow and grow and grow. So he and others went forth. No direct promises, but a real certain trust, a desire to seek and find those who God will call to be his own. A real wish to try and persuade people, to try and show them that Jesus was Lord. A real effort to plan, to raise money, to pray towards making sure that people everywhere could hear about Jesus being king of the universe and all the blessings that could be had in his name. Well, the same for us, isn't it? We don't know what God's going to do in Mayfair in this coming year. We don't know what God's going to do in our offices or our families in this coming year. But we know the kingdom will grow. We know that throughout this year, people will become Christians. And it's great, isn't it, to think through our plans for 2010 in the light of the one thing that is certain for this year. More certain than any promises any political leader makes. It's good, isn't it, to think through our opportunities. None of us know who might become a Christian. 
but good to think through and reflect on and pray over the chances we have to talk about Jesus. Good to think through and pray through the chances we have through this fellowship here to introduce people to Jesus. Chances like Christianity Explored or Faith or Fiction. Chances like all the events around a passion for life. So many different types of events for all different types of people. Chances like every Sunday. Chances like the terminal events we put on, the mission dinners. Chances like uh, the Mum's Bible Study Group we heard about earlier and prayed for. We don't know who. Got no idea. But we know the kingdom will grow. We know that people will become Christians. I don't know. Pray for one. Pray for a million. Prioritize one. Go go for the million. But what an encouragement it is to go into 2010 knowing that some people become Christians. Let's pray. Father, thank you that though mountains be shaken and hills removed, you and your unfailing love will never change. Your covenant promise will never be removed. Thank you that this is a great promise we can go into 2010 with. And we pray, Father, that you will help us to um, be excited by this, to be sure about this, and to think through how it might affect our daily, weekly, monthly decisions. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.